Welcome to the International Trade Minute, quick fire trade news, where time is trade. We are your go-to podcast for rapid and concise updates on trade and law, designed specifically for busy trade professionals. Sponsored by Rydal Law Firm and prepared by seasoned trade attorneys, our twice-weekly podcast packages your essential trade updates, all in the time it takes to enjoy your coffee break. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and join the conversation with a network of like-minded professionals on LinkedIn. Where time is trade, make every minute count. Today we delve into a fascinating mix of topics that highlight the complex intersection of law, compliance, and global commerce. Let's get started. First up, we're delving into a story where justice and international trade collide, with a gavel hanging in wait over Nine Star Corp. This Chinese exporting giant finds itself in the eye of a legal storm, facing the formidable Court of International Trade. Nine Star Corp is sweating under the legal spotlight. They've recently requested a preliminary injunction against their placement on the Iger Forced Labor Prevention Act entity list. This list is no small matter. It's a critical component of U.S. policy against forced labor practices. Enter Judge Gary Katzman, the man at the center of this high-stakes judicial chess match. He's taking a firm but calculated stance. Katzman has hinted at something crucial. Nine Star might just have a leg to stand on under Section 1581-I. This section is the court's residual jurisdiction, a lifeline for civil actions linked to embargoes or other quantitative restrictions. But here's where it gets interesting. The U.S. argues that the UFLPA entity list isn't an embargo, but a rebuttable presumption. Yet Judge Katzman, undeterred, has signaled that the court might still have a say in matters like these, especially where exemptions or reconsiderations were previously granted. In this judicial endgame, Katzman concludes that plaintiffs are likely to establish subject matter jurisdiction under Section 1581 I, 1, C, D. But, and it's a big but, he's holding his cards close, he's made no other disposition, no finding of fact. What does this mean for Nine Star? For now, the court's judgment remains a looming question mark, as further proceedings will decide the fate of Nine Star's motion for preliminary injunction. As the gavel hangs in waiting, this case exemplifies the intricate dance between international trade and legal justice. It's a reminder of the delicate balance and the profound impact these decisions can have on global commerce. Up next, we're diving into a significant shift in the U.S. Department of Justice's approach to corporate compliance. The DOJ is setting its sights higher and tougher, targeting executives for compliance failures, regardless of their rank. Marshall Miller, the Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General, recently spoke at the New York City Bar Association's International White Collar Crime Symposium. Miller emphasized the DOJ's firm stance on holding corporate executives accountable, no matter their prominence or influence. A striking example is the recent case against the virtual currency exchange, Binance, and its CEO. This case involving significant anti-money laundering law violations resulted in a record sanctions penalty. Miller described it as a prime example of the DOJ's commitment to accountability. Miller acknowledges the challenges in prosecuting these complex criminal schemes facing aggressive defenses from sophisticated legal counsel. But the DOJ is not backing down. It's not just about bringing more prosecutions or securing higher sentences. It's also about encouraging good corporate compliance. Speaking of compliance, the DOJ's revamped voluntary self-disclosure policies are already showing results. Companies have begun self-reporting potential violations, leading to new investigations. Miller's message is clear. Stay tuned. There's also a growing emphasis on compensation clawback policies. 
the DOJ expects corporations to include these in their compliance programs. These policies could lead to clawbacks of bonuses or other rewards from employees who participated in or oversaw violations. This isn't just theoretical. It's becoming a common inquiry in enforcement actions. Under a new pilot program, companies seeking resolutions with the DOJ must develop and implement compliance-promoting criteria within their compensation and bonus systems. Those who successfully claw back compensation from wrongdoers might even see reduced penalties. Marshall's advice to companies? Review your compensation policies now before discovering misconduct. A policy in name only is as good as having no policy at all. This DOJ shift marks a new era in corporate accountability, one where the top brass is as vulnerable as any. Next topic takes us into the intricate world of garment classification, a subject that might seem mundane but is vital in international trade. The U.S. Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, recently made a fascinating ruling about women's and girls' knit upper body garments. It's all about the tightness at the bottom of these garments. In a ruling dated November 14th, CBP examined four styles of knit upper body garments from Francesca's, a popular clothing brand. These garments are made from cotton and polyester, but it's not the material that's at the heart of this issue. It's the design. Specifically, the ruling focuses on whether the waistband at the bottom of these garments is tight to the body. This might sound like a small detail, but in the world of tariff classifications, it's a game changer. One of the women's garments and the girl's garment each had a ribbed waistband that could be tightened at the bottom. This feature, CBP said, classifies them under the harmonized tariff schedule subheading for sweaters, pullovers, sweatshirts, waistcoats, vests, and similar articles. But what about the other two women's styles? Well, these didn't have the same tightening feature at the bottom. Despite having a ribbed waistband, they fit more loosely. So CBP classified these under a different subheading, this time for women's or girls' blouses and shirts. There's also a twist regarding the country of origin markings. While Francesca's didn't ask about this specifically, CBP noted that the label made in Turkey on these garments doesn't meet the required standards. Instead, they should be marked as made in Turkey or product of Turkey to satisfy the requirements. This ruling highlights the nuanced world of international trade classifications. It's not just about the type of garment, but also about specific design features that can shift a product from one tariff category to another. This next segment focuses on a groundbreaking case in the world of cryptocurrency, the appeal against U.S. sanctions on Tornado Cash, a virtual currency mixer. Six users of Tornado Cash are challenging a U.S. court decision that upheld sanctions against the service. They argue that the Treasury Department overstepped its authority by designating Tornado Cash last year. Their claim? U.S. sanctions laws don't permit the targeting of an open-source software project like Tornado Cash, as it doesn't constitute property under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. In an appeal filed this month, these users contend that the Treasury's action extends its authority beyond recognition. They fear that if this decision stands, the Treasury's power could become nearly limitless. The backstory is intriguing. Tornado Cash was added to the specially designated nationals list by OFAC for allegedly laundering over $7 billion in virtual currency, including for North Korea's Lazarus Group. But the appellants assert they use Tornado Cash for legitimate purposes, like anonymous donations to Ukraine or safeguarding their investments. The district court had a different view, though. It recognized Tornado Cash as a national and a person under relevant laws, with an interest in the immutable smart contracts it offers. But the six users of Tornado Cash are pushing back. 
They argue these smart contracts, being on a public network, aren't anyone's property and hence can't be sanctioned. They emphasize that while some may misuse Tornado Cash, most users are ordinary people seeking privacy for legitimate transactions. The implications of this case are vast. The appellants warn that upholding the sanctions could set a precedent that stretches the definitions of entity, property, and interest beyond recognition. They fear a world where intangible concepts like software code could be arbitrarily forbidden. This case isn't just about Tornado Cash. It's a debate at the intersection of technology, privacy, and government authority with potential repercussions for the entire digital economy. Lastly, we're discussing a significant update from the FDA that impacts the food industry. New tools and resources for upcoming food traceability requirements. On November 30th, the FDA announced a suite of new tools and frequently asked questions, now available on its website. These resources are specifically designed to help businesses prepare for the new traceability requirements for high-risk foods. The FDA's updated website now boasts a dedicated web page about traceability lot codes. This includes examples of how key data elements, or KDEs, might appear on invoices and bills of lading. It's a crucial step for clarity in the complex world of food traceability. There's more. The site also offers examples of a traceability plan, new frequently asked questions, and guidance on how to apply for a waiver or exemption. This is a treasure trove for businesses looking to align with the upcoming requirements. The compliance date for the FDA's food traceability rule, issued in November 2022, is set for January 20th, 2026. But there's a grace period. The FDA has stated it won't begin routine inspections on compliance with this rule until 2027. This timeline offers businesses a critical window to adapt and prepare. The tools provided by the FDA are not just regulatory requirements. They are essential for ensuring food safety and maintaining consumer trust in an increasingly globalized food market. The introduction of these tools and FAQs by the FDA is a proactive move. It's an acknowledgement of the challenges businesses face in meeting these new standards and a commitment to providing the necessary guidance. As we inch closer to 2026, these updates will be vital for businesses in the food industry to stay compliant and competitive. Thank you for joining us on International Trade Minute, your rapid source of trade updates for busy trade professionals. And we hope to have you back for our next episode. Don't forget to subscribe.